On this episode of the Blue Jacketeer podcast, we'll be covering chapter 21 of the Cormorant Manual. Welcome to the Blue Jacketeer podcast, where we help you prepare for the Navy-wide advancement exam by covering study material created by highly qualified sailors. Learn more about what we have to offer at www.bluejacketeer.com. Welcome back to the BlueJacketeer.com podcast for Hospital Corman. I'm Taylor Larson, and I'll be walking you through this chapter of the Corman Manual. Here at Blue Jacketeer, we aim to bring you the tools you need to be successful on the Navy-wide advancement exam. On this episode, we'll continue with the Hospital Corman Manual covering Chapter 21. Be sure to pay attention, because on the next episode, you'll be quizzed on what you learned today. Without further delay, let's get started. Sit back, relax, and listen up. This is Chapter 21 of the Hospital Corman Manual, Emergency Medical Care Procedures. So, emergency medical care procedures. We're going to be talking about first aid, triage, airways, shock, assessments, cardiac emergencies, morphine uses, wound closures, just to name a few. Yes, I will be skipping around, and yes, I will be giving you the page numbers for the areas that I'm not talking about. If I didn't, the podcast would be three hours long, and I can't even listen to myself talk for that long, much less make you suffer through that. So, on to the lesson. First, there's triage, which is French for to sort. In the military, we have two versions of triage, tactical and non-tactical. Triage separates patients into categories according to the urgency of their injury and the amount of time required to treat it. We'll start with non-tactical triage. Priority one in these categories are the immediate casualties. These have critical injuries but will only need a minimal amount of time or equipment to manage and will probably survive after their treatment. Priority two is called delayed. These are casualties with debilitating injuries but do not need immediate treatment to save life or limb. Easy example is a long bone fracture. It sucks, but they'll likely live. Priority three is minor or the walking wounded. These casualties have minor injuries that can wait and may even assist by comforting other patients or helping as stretcher bearers. Priority four, or expectant patients, have injuries so severe that they have a minimal chance of survival. Priority five are the deceased casualties. They are unresponsive, pulseless, and breathless. If this is a disaster emergency, you'll rarely have time for resuscitation attempts. Tactical triage is essentially the same, except there is no Category 5, and Category 3 is called Minimal instead of Minor. Alright, so a majority of how this chapter covers the emergency medical procedures that it wants to touch on is scenario-based training, with a lot of positional descriptions that simply don't translate well to this medium. So what I've done in its place is the same that I've done for the other podcast. That being, pick out the bits that need reinforcing specifically for the tests, but what's different this time is that it might seem a little more disjointed. But stay with me, take notes if you can, and I promise you'll be in better shape for the test than you were before listening. Airway management is going to be our next major topic, ranging from the head tilt, chin lift, to flexible catheters, to NPAs. The goal here is to open the patient's airway without giving them any more injuries to complain about. First thing to do is take body substance isolation precautions, situation permitting. If you're being shot at, you can skip the gloves and eye protection. Place the patient in the recovery position if they're unconscious or have an altered level of consciousness, or LOC. Roll them to their back, establish the airway with a head tilt chin lift unless you think they might have a spinal injury. 
If they may have a spinal injury, use the jaw thrust maneuver instead. Check for breathing three to five seconds after the airway is open, placing an ear to the patient's mouth, and assess breathing by look, listen, and feel. Continuing the airway maintenance topic, let's go over oral and nasal suctioning. The patient should be in a semi-fowler's position, or on their side if there is severe trauma, in order to let gravity help you clear the airway. Yankauer catheters are the best for general suctioning as their tips have a wide diameter and are somewhat rigid. Never suction for more than 15 seconds for adults, 10 seconds for children, and 5 seconds for infants, and make sure you quickly and gently advance the catheter 3 to 5 inches into the nose. If a casualty starts to vomit during suctioning, remove the airway immediately. The chapter describes the needle decompression process, and it's definitely worth a read, but one thing I want to address is the placement of the needle and catheter. You'll perform a needle D at the second intercostal space, between rib number two and number three, approximately in line with the nipple on the same side of the casualty's chest injury. You'll insert the needle over the top of the third rib to avoid the blood vessels and nerves that run along the bottom of each rib. Next, we have oxygen administration, which we've largely already covered in chapter 20, so I'll only cover any new information. Humidified oxygen can be not only more comfortable for the patient, but also be particularly helpful for children and patients with COPD. Non-rebreather masks offer 90% oxygen at a rate of 10 to 15 liters per minute, and nasal cannulas can deliver 24 to 44% oxygen when set to a rate of 1 to 4 liters per minute. Alright, now we have shock. We haven't talked about shock in a while. Well, actually, I don't think we've ever talked about shock, so let's get right into it. Shock is a state of inadequate tissue perfusion resulting in a decreased amount of oxygen to vital tissues and organs. There are a few types of shock, including hypovolemic, disruptive, which has three types in itself, and cardiogenic. Hypovolemic shock is also known as hemorrhagic shock, which should clue you in on its cause. Hypovolemic shock is when there is a large loss of intravascular volume, be it blood, plasma, or fluid loss. Disruptive shock is when the blood vessels get larger without a corresponding increase in fluid volume. This makes the cardiac output decrease because there just isn't enough blood in the chambers at the start of the cardiac cycle. Disruptive shock has three types. The first of which is neurogenic, which is when the nervous system fails to control the diameter of the blood vessels. Septic shock happens when a severe infection causes the vasodilation. And psychogenic shock is when the vagus nerve is stimulated, causing bradycardia and fainting. Cardiogenic shock is simply a failure of the heart to be able to pump an adequate amount of blood to all the vital parts of the body. There's a great chart on page 21, tech 19, that explains how the different types of shock affect different vital signs to help you identify them quickly. Now that we've talked about the different types of shock, let's go over the stages of a patient going into shock, and as it progresses through the body and affects vital organs. Compensated, or non-progressive shock, is the first stage. Here, the patient will still have a good blood pressure, but the difference between the systolic and diastolic, or the pulse pressure, becomes smaller. If you're able to treat the shock fully at this stage, the patient will typically recover. Decompensated, or progressive shock, is when blood pressure falls because the blood volume has decreased 15 to 25%. 
Signs and symptoms are much more obvious because the compensatory mechanisms that were working double time during the last stage are beginning to fail. Recovery at this stage is still possible, but is not always successful. Irreversible shock is just that. The shock has progressed to a terminal stage and there are life-threatening reductions in cardiac output, blood pressure, and tissue perfusion. Recovery at this stage is rare, even with aggressive treatment. Pages 21 Tech 21 through 25 discuss the three types of shock in much more detail, and I'd recommend reading those pages and heading to bluejacketeer.com to get your best studying done on this chapter. Our next topic is patient assessment, where we'll discuss some emergency conditions in tactical and non-tactical environments. The first step in this is your general impression, a global overview of the status of the patient's systems to pick out any obvious external problems like hemorrhaging. Another external problem is uncomplicated syncope or fainting. This is just from blood pooling and dilated veins, preventing the blood from getting to the brain. Syncope can be caused by some medical problems as well, like diabetes, a stroke, heart condition, or epilepsy. A cerebrovascular accident is a fancy way of referring to a stroke. It happens when arterial blood flow from the heart is interrupted, and a portion of the brain is at a loss for fresh blood and oxygen. The cause can be arteriosclerosis, a clot formed in the brain, or hemorrhage in the brain. A stroke will typically cause some degree of tissue damage and a loss of function as a result. First signs to watch for are weakness in one side of the body, opposite the side of the brain that was affected. Convulsions or seizures are characterized by severe and uncontrolled muscle spasms or muscle rigidity. Seizure episodes can affect 1-2% to of the general population. Seeing someone seizing is frightening to say the least. To see someone in such little control of their body is heartbreaking. Most will think of epilepsy as soon as seizures are mentioned, but there are a few varieties that are characterized differently, and are classified by whether or not they affect the central nervous system. Epilepsy is defined in the book as a condition characterized by an abnormal focus of activity in the brain, producing severe motor responses or changes in consciousness. We'll talk now about grand mal and petite mal seizures. Grand mal seizures are the more serious variants of epilepsy. These seizures are sometimes preceded by an aura that the casualty can come to recognize and use to lie down and prepare for the seizure's onset. A petite mal seizure is shorter than the grand mal and is known by an altered state of awareness or a partial loss of consciousness with some localized isolated muscular contractions. First aid measures for either of these seizures is simply to protect the casualty from self-injury, especially the head and neck. The book goes into a medical assessment scenario here, and it covers the entirety of a regular physical assessment, so I'll mention key things that the test can ask about, and new information that we haven't covered already. When assessing a patient's mental status, remember the AVPU scale, alert, verbal, pain, and unresponsive. The test really likes to ask questions like, if a patient presents with X, what treatment category are they? Or something to that effect. High priority conditions will be patients that are unresponsive, responsive but not following commands, those that have difficulty breathing, shock, chest pain with a systolic pressure of less than 100, and uncontrolled bleeding. 
If the patient is unconscious, you'll need to start a rapid physical exam looking at each area of the body from head to toe for DCAP BTLS. If it's been a while since you've been to core school, that acronym stands for deformities, contusions, abrasions, punctures or penetrations, burns, tenderness, lacerations, and swelling. Keep this acronym in mind as you carefully search and inspect each area of the body for further injuries. We've got two more acronyms to cover before we go into cardiac emergencies. The first is SAMPLE, when you're getting a history from either the patient's family or any bystanders at the scene that may be familiar with them. SAMPLE is signs and symptoms, allergies, medications, any past pertinent medical history, last oral intake, and events before the illness or injury. Another acronym to help during a physical is OPQRSTI. This can be applied to a wide range of injuries, including general pain, respiratory issues, and cardiac issues. The acronym stands for Onset, Provocation, Quality, Radiation, Severity, Time, and Interventions. Alright, so here's the thing. Page 21, TAC 33 through 60 are purely step-by-step guides for almost every kind of emergency assessment that you can think of. And while there's good info within these pages, we've already covered a majority of the information in this and the previous 20 podcasts. So rather than put you to sleep while you're driving or working, I'm going to recommend that you do two things. First, read these pages, 21 Tech 33 through 21 Tech 60, and make sure you're using our amazing study tools at bluejacketeer.com to get all of the information in this chapter, including what we're not re-reviewing, and the rest of the bibs before your next test. Let's move on to morphine. Morphine is the best drug for pain management, but that's not to say that it doesn't have downsides. It is a severe respiratory depressant and shouldn't be given to patients in shock or respiratory distress. It increases intracranial pressure and constricts the pupils, meaning it should never be given in head injury cases, and it's cardiotoxic and a peripheral vasodilator, again making it contraindicated for patients in a state of shock. The adult dose of morphine is 10 to 20 milligrams that can be repeated every four hours if needed. If a patient is in shock and is in severe pain, 20 milligrams of morphine can be given with a massage of the injection site, but you have to resist the urge to give any more, and the dose should not be repeated more than twice without an order from a medical officer. If you give a patient morphine, write an M with the hour of injection on the patient's forehead. Internal soft tissue injuries are, by definition, difficult to assess, so here are some visible indications of an internal injury to keep in mind. Hematemesis, which is bright red blood vomit. Hemoptysis, which is coughing bright red blood. Melena, excretion of tarry black stool. Hematochesia, bright red blood from the rectum. Hematuria, blood in the urine. Non-menstrual vaginal bleeding epistaxis, or nosebleeds, and ecchymosis, which is when blood pools near the skin surface. Unfortunately, there is little a Corman can do for these injuries since they almost always need surgical treatment. The goal is to place the patient in the shock position, elevate the legs, and transport. There's a great section on wound closures and suturing on page 21, tack 67 through 72, That is truly worth a read, so I'll pick out some key pieces of info from this bit and we'll wrap up the chapter. There are many kinds of suture materials to choose from when closing a wound, but there are a few that are particularly common. 
First, we'll talk about non-absorbable materials. Silk reacts with tissue a lot and can be spit from the wound. Synthetic materials like nylon or dermalon are great for surface use and rarely cause a tissue reaction, but typically have to be tied with three to four square knots in each suture. Common absorbable materials are pretty restricted to catgut. Now, despite its name, catgut is actually made from connective tissue of the first one-third of the small intestine of a healthy government-inspected sheep. If you've made it this far into the podcast, you can use that last bit as some trivia next time you're in the office. Catgut is available in 6.0 to 0 size and 1 to 4 size. 6.0 is the smallest diameter and 4 is the largest. The strength of the suture obviously increases with increased diameter. The most common aesthetic when suturing is xylocaine, available in 0.5, 1, and 2% strengths, and with or without epinephrine. The maximum amount of xylocaine that should be used is 50 milliliters for a 1% solution or the equivalent of whatever strength you're using. That about wraps up the key info from wound closures and likewise this episode. This concludes our lesson for chapter 21 of the Hospital Corman Manual. I hope that you are not only able to learn something but also apply some of the information in this chapter to your daily duties. Remember, at Blue Jacketeer, we bring you the very best in advancement exam preparation. Don't forget to listen to the audio quiz for this lesson and get your best studying done with our expert study tools at www.bluejacketeer.com. Also, make sure to look for our next lesson where we'll be covering Chapter 22 of the Hospital Courtroom Manual. As always, I'm Taylor Larson, reminding you to stay Navy and always keep working for that next rank. Thank you.